You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity and infinite combinations. My name is Sarah, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Kennedy. Hello. And Sue. Hi there. And we are thrilled to be joined by a special guest, the author of the novelization of the topic of our show today, Far Beyond the Stars, Mr. Stephen Barnes. Howdy. So before we get into our deep dive on the episode, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar per month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries to customized loot boxes. Visit www.patreon.com slash womenatwarp for more info. You can also visit our Tee Public store with Women at Warp merch along with other non-podcast-specific Trek designs, and that's at tpublic.com slash stores slash womenatwarp. And if you'll be at Emerald City Comic Con December 2nd to the 5th, you can catch Grace and myself doing two Women at Warp panels. Thursday at 5, we'll be talking about women's costuming in Star Trek. And Friday at 5, we'll be talking about all the current and upcoming seasons of Trek. And we have a lot to talk about, so we hope to see you there. So, Steve, could we just jump in and could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your history with Star Trek and how you ended up doing this novelization? Well, I've been a science fiction novelist since uh, the early 80s, actually. And, of course, Star Trek came out when I was in high school. I guess it was the original series, and I enjoyed it very much. I mean, it was it was uh, arguably the best science fiction show with a continuing cast that had ever been on on television. So you know, we all we all loved it. And what happened was after I guess I'd written maybe ten novels at the time that uh, I was contacted by the publisher uh, that they had a, a script called Far Beyond the Stars that dealt with Cisco and dealt with issues of race in the 1950s. And I think that when they decided to novelize it, they realized that they needed, they were going to need interiority. In other words, if you have a Black character on Star Trek, it's played by a Black actor or actress, hopefully not somebody in Blackface. And that person can bring the interiority to it. They can bring their exper- experiences to it, what their life is like. But if you're doing a book, and the book is written by a white guy, then his ability to express the interiority of a character, the reality of a character, will be limited by their experience and contact with people of of whatever group they're trying to represent. So the easiest thing to do, the, the, the fastest solution, is to find a writer who is a member of the same group that is being discussed, that is being represented. That way they can bring their experience to it. So when they asked me if I would do it, and I had a month to write it. I would have to do it in a month. And I read the script and I liked the script. And I thought this was a fine piece of work, but I figured that no matter how I vamped, no matter how I fleshed out or stretched out or took my time with the text, a 60-page script is not going to make a 200-and-something page book. So I was going to need to create a backstory. I was going to need to do something to flesh it out. And once again, within this this time period. So I had a couple of weeks before I got the script. So I used that time to set up the backstory. So I had read the script. I came up with an idea about what the backstory could conceivably be. And I used the time before I got the completed script back and the clock started running to research the backstory that I had in mind. So that by the time the clock started ticking, I had everything laid out. And so I had two weeks to write the first draft. And then I spent a week polishing it. In other words, and the first draft was basically, I would take the script and I would, I probably spent a week taking the script and turning that into a very, very rough draft. And then the next week, I roughed out the backstory. That was that was brutal. I was just you know, doing thousands and thousands of words every day. But I didn't try to, uh, I didn't worry about, worry about spelling or grammar or syntax or anything. It's just get it out. Then the next week, I polished it. You know, I, I corrected the spelling and, 
and did the indentations and corrected the grammar so that I had some kind of draft at the end of the third week. And then the last week was going over it and polishing it. So that was the, that was the, the pattern that I went through. Two, two weeks to create a first draft, one week to polish, and then the last week, you know, the fourth week to refine that polish. I was just working, you know, from the time I woke up in the morning until I went to bed at night. Maybe I took some time. I certainly took some time to eat. I probably took some time to exercise, but that was it. I mean, it's just when I was finished working for the day, I just collapsed, collapsed into bed. And I think that I was able to do that because it felt like it felt like a good project. It felt as if the people who created this were trying to do something real. They were trying to deal with some real issues. And so I felt that it behooved me to take this seriously as I could and to bring as close to my A game as I could, given the compressed time frame that was involved. Well, I really enjoyed it. I never would have guessed with all of the extra material you added that this was a four-week project. (laughs) (laughs) That's all they gave me. We'll talk a little more about that. So today we are going to be discussing the episode Far Beyond the Stars, Season 6, Episode 13, original air date, February 11th, 1998. This is a lot of people's favorite episode, including Avery Brooks. Steve, you mentioned earlier that you felt like they purposely picked a Black author to write the novelization. They also, I understand, specifically asked Avery Brooks to direct this episode, even though they didn't like the combination of someone being the main character and the director at the same time. Because it sounds like they were being really sensitive about this episode and making sure the topic was explored and presented by people in that group. So this show was nominated for three Emmys, Outstanding Art Direction for a Series, Outstanding Costume Design for a Series for Robert Blackman, and Outstanding Hairstyling for a Series. The cast and crew were very disappointed that Avery Brooks wasn't nominated. And the main thing I love about this episode is that it deals with racism without metaphor. In TOS, they're like, we'll talk about racism, but it's going to be about aliens who are half black and half white. Yeah, I hated that. I mean, if, you, if you'd wanted to do that, you wanted me to believe that you were doing something, then one of those aliens would have been played by a black actor. One of them would have been played by a white actor, and then they would have had black and white makeup on. Casting them both as white actors was not an act of courage. Yes. And actually, it was a very different story to start with. The original story had Jake traveling back in time to the 1950s and meeting a circle of sci-fi writers. And then in the end, the whole thing turned out to have been a trick played on him by an alien studying humans. So they ended up totally rewriting it and making it about Benjamin Sisko experiencing racism. Cool. There's always fun parts of this entire episode to take away with when you watch it several times, especially you know, after as long as it's been on the air. And every time I watch it, I get deeper (laughs) and deeper into it and and start formulating all types of theories as to how it relates to the actual universe, instead of it just being a vehicle for how to talk about the horrors of racism. And the fun part about that is that it kind of does both at the same time. I find it interesting that they were initially going to go with Jake and having an alien play tricks on him. Like, that's cool right that's trek but that's also very safe that is a a safe way to go about it because as we even reference in the episode itself it kind of negates the meat of or at least the poignancy of of the story itself i don't think that would have been a better episode no yeah so i i find it interesting when you you try to think about it within the context of the universe itself and i can't help but think of the prophets guiding benny to think of it, to conceptualize a future, and it just happened to involving somebody who looks like him, and retroactively explaining how Cisco is the emissary, not just out of like pure luck because he was the first one in the wormhole, but because you know this science fiction author in the fifties in Harlem manifested him, and the and the prophets caught that, caught wind of that cosmically. I don't know how however you explain somebody non corporal like the prophets, but they caught wind of Benny's imagination and the pain and the and the frustration at which that type of concept would come from and the second someone matched the description in the distant future they were like hey blam you're the you're the emissary because some great 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 relative of yours said so see i always pictured it the other way around 
because we get the framing story in this episode of Cisco wondering whether he can go on. He's losing so many friends. He's hurting so much. And then the prophets make him experience part of Benny's life, which ends with you're the dreamer and the dream, right? And it it seems like the moral of this is you have to keep going even when you don't want to. And I've found myself wondering if that is a good moral. Yeah, there's heavy themes there. I mean, when you take into consideration the complexities and the nuances of racism, right? Especially as heavily socialized as it was in the 50s, and then try to squeeze it into science fiction, there's there's just not enough... Mm, I feel like there's not enough time in a podcast, certainly, but also in an episode... <laughs> To really get into it and, and, and seek your teeth into the meat of the issue, if you will, use a t- tired analogy like that. But it was only through, and I'll, you know, seamless plug, me doing things with your away team that I thought about it in a, in a different way. And I haven't quite formalized a theory yet. That can be a panel in like the next, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> the near future. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out eventually, but I just, I feel like it was fed to us as if, Cisco, Ben Cisco went back in time because of a common thread of frustration, a common thread of giving up itness. My it's late here, my brain is failing. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> desperation in terms of feeling like their their struggle is fruitless and what's the point of going on if I'm still enduring what we're trying to overcome in the first place. And either way you look at it, I guess is my point. There's a common thread of the prophets picking up on the despair that both men felt mm-hmm. in their respective times. Well, Kennedy, I don't want to blow your mind, but they considered making the ending of the entire series, having the final shot be Benny walking through the station. See, I mean, there were hints to it at the end, though, right? Because I distinctly remember their seat, like him being in an institution, like riding on the yeah. walls, and it was Damar. I read that they considered having the final shot being like Benny directing Deep Space Nine. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. But I I want to jump back real quick to something you brought up, Sarah, which is that the episode kept being praised in reviews for dealing with racism on Earth and not being so metaphorical and, and steeped in science fiction as Star Trek usually did. And I just want to point out there was a review specifically from the Chicago Tribune that pointed out that this episode would shatter whatever remains of the opposition to Avery Brooks's casting. Right. And I think we sometimes forget, because we're like 20 plus years removed from the original airing of this episode, that that was a thing in fandom, that people were still angry in 1998 that a black man was commanding a space station. People who called themselves fans of Star Trek we're still mad about it. So at least the haterade is consistent, despite your generational <laughs> existence. And at least, at least the people who, for some reason, find reasons to, you know, hate modern Trek, I'll call it, at least they're the same folks who have issues with progress in general. So consistency. One of the strong, biggest things, since the biggest poignancy in this episode is discussing racism without, you know, pulling any punches and seeing how the supporting cast in the writer's room not only supported supported Benny as an individual, but also him creatively. There's there's definitely meaning behind Colin Meadey's, you know, kind of dull, mediocre robot author guy getting a novel, right? Not really having to work hard, not having to excel, um, not having to struggle, not dealing with strife, just, you know, coasting along and and getting rewarded for it meanwhile benny is literally fighting tooth and nail to get this story made but the biggest thing i always had issue with despite the reasons why there's you know we can argue away is sadig el fadil's character is clearly still not a white person but they have him coded as british as if you know he couldn't possibly understand that this brown person sitting in this room couldn't possibly understand What Benny's going through in, in context of like his own experience in, in America at that time, but also wherever he came from previously. I felt like that was a bit of a, uh, the fact that it wasn't explained raises a lot of questions for me personally. I understand that to keep the story pushing, they had to center on Benny to make it a little bit more oomph like, but 
I was kind of like, this is a whole other opportunity to weigh in on this in the way that Armin Shimmerman's character was always coming to bat for Benny, always calling the editor out on his BS for whatever reason. I feel like there could have been another opportunity for an ally there. So maybe his silence was heavier than I, I gave it weight for initially. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to hear if any of you have thought about that, if I'm reading too much into it, because that's possible too. <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. And I think not just in this episode, but throughout the series, I think the writers sort of whitewashed Sid. For sure. Because they never really lean into that character being a, a person of color, ever. They always just kind of leave it as him being British. Mm-hmm. But then they'll go so far as to cast brown people as his parents. And it's like, well, that's great that you're normalizing it, right? That's the ultimate goal right? of stories like this, of, of movements, you know, across generations. Like, that's the goal. But at the same time, also not talking about it is kind of like erasure. It's the whole, you know, I don't see color argument. I do have a quote from Avery Brooks that kind of addresses that, sort of, at least mentions it. He said, if we had changed the people's clothes, the story could be about right now. What's insidious about racism is that it is unconscious. Even among these bright and enlightened characters, a group that includes a woman writer who has to use a man's name to get her work published and who is married to a brown man with a British accent in 1953. It's perfectly reasonable to coexist with someone like Pabst, who was the editor. It's in the culture. It's the way people think. So that was the approach we took. I never talked about racism. I just showed how these intelligent people think and it all came out of them. Interesting. Oh, and incidentally about Armin Shimnan's character, he was actually supposed to be the editor originally. That character was based on H.L. Gold, who was the editor of Galaxy Magazine that Incredible Tales was based on. But Iris Stephen Bear was worried that casting him as this like penny-pinching editor might come across as a little anti-Semitic. So they mm. moved him to be her Brasov and made Renee the editor. Well, they also made Renee much more of a John W. Campbell type. John W. Campbell, the very problematic and racist and xenophobic and misogynistic editor of Astounding. Oh, see, I had no idea. This is definitely Sarah's wheelhouse when it comes to zine publishing and, and collecting <laughs> stories and stuff. So I'm like, I came here to learn. <laughs> I will look up this, this, this dude, though. What was his name, Sue? John W. Campbell. Boo. It's one of those parts of, of history and of science fiction history and of, of literature history where... This this guy was in charge of of this huge magazine, and and held all these really disgusting beliefs. But like, if your story was good enough, he'd publish it. And that's like Asimov is Jewish, and this guy, not a fan of the Jewish people, but he mm. published Asimov stories because he thought they were good enough. And if if you are interested in that sort of history, there is a somewhat recent book. Just, I think it's just called Astounding that goes through a lot of this stuff from th from this time period and from that magazine. It's good to know. Digression. Apologies. <laughs> no, no. It's what we do here, Women at War. We provide alternate points of view and resources. Yes. And just to give a little more background, there was a major award named after John W. Campbell, and they did not change this, the name of this award until 2019, mostly because the person who won it that year, Jeanette Ng, walked up on stage to accept. And said John W. Campbell was a fucking fascist. Thank God. <laughs> it was a wonderful moment. I love when people put things out there like that. Like, call, like you have to call it out as it is, right? Racism has existed on a social level because we've permitted it to for this long, right? Institutionalized racism is a little different, right? It takes a lot long. Like there's, it's more hands on deck in order to, you know, dismember something like that. But in terms of like what we find socially acceptable, you have to call it out, which is one of the reasons why I appreciated Armin Shimmerman's character in this, because mm -hmm. he just, you know, called him a fascist. He was ready to fight. All the time. I was like, <laughs> let's go. I was like, this is your boy. Let's get it. Just seeing somebody who was ready and willing and had the capacity to stand up and support somebody else during that context and extremely other you know, other extremely racially charged settings, conversations, tense areas, right, is always, like, it gives me just a sigh of relief because, like, we just don't see that. If there was more of that, we wouldn't be in the situations that we're in. So to see a character be that vocal was, I feel it like cut some of the tension of that episode for me. 
the love between Benny and Cassie, of course, helped smooth that over too, but it was just, it was heavy stuff and made heavier still with how, how, oh gosh, the, 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 I want to, I don't want to say pulp because conceptually that means it's trash and they've gotten rid of it, but the, the, the delicious goodness of all of their portrayals, right? Everybody's performance was so, like, nobody was struggling. Not not a single person struggled with this abrupt change of character for them. And it really speaks to, you know, the 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 weight of each of these actors, the direction of Avery Brooks. Almost a little too much in some cases. I'm looking directly at Mark Ilamo and Jeffrey Combs as the cops. I was like, see, now I'm concerned because this feels natural. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, though, the part that got me, I mean, is when Renee, as Pabst, says it's not about what's right. It's about what is. Ugh. And just, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Seeing some of your favorite actors slip on into like racist roles like that is jarring because yes, they're actors, right? They're paid to make you believe what they want you to believe. But at the same time, like sometimes like I will always look at Jeffrey Combs sideways because of this performance. Like always, always I'll be like, Oh, Hey, what's up? No, thank you. I'll keep you right in front of me, sir. Appreciate you for your everything that you've done in the fandom. Thanks. Well, I feel like they do a great job of setting up this ensemble cast in completely different roles in a very short period of time. Steve, when you got the script, did you have any thoughts on all of these new characters we were getting introduced to? No, I just took it as as writ. You know, the the characters in the fifties were simply a group of characters. No, nobody, there was no indication who was going to be playing what. So I simply did them straight. I didn't I didn't put in cues so that you'd know that this was really this person or that person. I, I don't think I did. It was just a question of dealing with the story, dealing with the, the themes. Who are these people? What do they want? What's going on in this situation? And then, you know, needless to say, I have my own attitudes about racism, whether it's in the real world or in the world of fiction or specifically in the world of science fiction or even more specifically in the world of Star Trek. Some of those attitudes I keep to my, I kept to myself. Others of them, I found ways to insert into the work, trying to create a, a philosophical structure in which I could use my own definitions of, of what these things are with an intent to make a contribution to the cultural conversation. Awesome. And then we see in this first act, we see some of the different kinds of racism that Benny is dealing with in the 50s. At work, it's a very polite racism where he and Kay are asked to sleep late on the day that someone's going to come take a photo of of the office. Paps says the average reader is not going to spend his hard-earned cash on stories written by Negroes. Right. And I felt this must, it must have been inspired by John W. Campbell refusing to serialize Nova by Samuel R. Delaney. Well, he did publish Samuel R. Delaney, I believe. He recognized that Chip Delaney was a genius, but what he wouldn't do is allow a depiction of, let's say, an advanced African civilization. Being a racist doesn't mean that you think all black people are monkeys. You just think that on average, we're closer to monkeys than white people. So it's it's a much subtler situation. And it's not John W. Campbell wasn't this huge log jam. You know, the his publisher wasn't the huge log jam. Other writers weren't the huge log jam. The audience wasn't the huge log, log jam. If it had been isolated to any individual or any position, we wouldn't have had as much trouble dealing with this. I mean, the problem isn't that we allowed racism to continue. The problem is that human beings are tribalistic and, and one vicious aspect of tribalism is racism. It's, it's not about them or it, it's about us. And I think that that's the thing that's hard for people to look at, which is why, you know, it's like, oh God, you know, not on Star Trek or, oh God, not in science fiction. What, you think Star Trek isn't done by human beings? That science fiction isn't done by human beings? It's It's not a... There's nothing special about it. If there was something special about it, we could have done something about it much more easily. But it's it's locked into the, the the natural human tendency to believe that your dog is the is the smartest, your mommy is the prettiest, and your your daddy is the strongest. That's wired into what we are. And the ugly version of that is when we actually believe that you know it's one thing to say to, to cheer for your school. 
you know, tribalism to me is cheering for the home team. Racism is actually believing the other team the bums. And vicious bigotry would be being willing to kneecap the captain of the opposing team. So almost everybody has tribalistic aspects. I mean, fans, you know, like to believe that they're better than mundanes. You know, fans are slands and so forth was a, a button that was very popular at science fiction conventions back in the 70s. So, you know, because there is this arena that we're very happy with, that we love, that, that represents us, doesn't mean that that arena is morally superior to Westerns or detective stories or anything else. It just happens to be what it is that we like. And it can seem amazing. So how can, how can there be all these evolved stories about aliens and robots and so forth, but we've still got racism? It's because aliens and robots don't compete for resources and, and reproductive partners. They're not a threat. They're extensions of our own egos. But other human beings compete with us. They're real. So the fear is, is not going to come out against an alien or a robot in a story. But the same science fiction field, you know, I, I, could, I could walk into a science fiction bookstore back in the 80s, 70s, and there are thousands of books. And there will be nothing on the covers of any of those books from, you know, my, my standard comments was the, the covers of those books were all white people and their imaginary friends. There was nobody of other ethnicities on the covers of those books. There was nothing particularly progressive about science fiction. In fact, it was more regressive than, say, mysteries. But I think that that started changing in the late 90s. And we've made a lot of progress since then. But for almost 20 years, Octavia Butler and I were the only Black people writing science fiction in the world, as far as we could see. And editors would blame, would say, well, it's because Black people aren't interested in science fiction. Or other people would say, well, we can't put Black people on the covers because the audience won't like it. And of course, the, once again, the audience blamed the authors, the authors blamed the publishers, the publishers blamed the art departments, the art departments blamed marketing, and marketing blamed distribution, and distribution blamed the customers. So it was, a, you know, it was running around in a circle, nobody taking responsibility for the fact that human beings are wired up like that. And that's, you know, there's nothing harder to change than the person you see in the mirror. I'm just going to point out that in 2007, Nadia Korafor had to fight the publisher not to have a white woman on the cover of her book, The Shadow Speaker, which is about a black Muslim woman. Yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know that. N Nettie was my student at Clarion a long time ago. She was exceptional from the beginning. You know, I'm not surprised. And it's just, as long as you look at it, this is how human beings are. And this is, in America, we've dealt with it in a particular way. We've had to deal with it in a particular way that involved white people and black people, and white people have most of the power. But it, it, if you take the sting out of it, if you take the moral dimension out of it and say that it's a perceptual thing that then gets multiplied across millions of separate small choices that ends up creating massive social effects, then it becomes easier than saying, well, you know, are you saying that, you know, white people, for instance, are evil? No, I'm not saying that at all. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with this is the way human beings are. And this is one way that we have dealt with the fallout for that, one way that the fallout from this manifests in our culture and is manifested historically. So, you know, asking the question about, well, what is it, you know, is, is you know, to, to, to ask, how do you deal with it? You first have to define what the thing is. And I would say the definition of racism is to attribute differential worth or capacity on the basis of race, race or ethnicity, especially innate as opposed to social conditioning. Once you have that definition, you can then say, well, how does it manifest? And then you can ask questions like, and uh, what do we do about it? And what role might fiction or science fiction or Star Trek have in helping to alleviate this thing if we decide that alleviating it is what we want? It, there's a lot of conversation to be had there. I, I personally think that the, the most important thing is to define the, the situation clearly and to discuss it. I think that, that discussing it is a massive, a massive curative. If that were not true, it wouldn't have taken until Django Unchained before we had a major Hollywood film dealing with slavery as the thing itself. You know, prior to that time, you had movies like Beloved, which had ex-slaves or 
Glory, which had ex-slaves, or Amistad, which had people on their way to being slaves, you know, but seeing slaves as slaves and depicting their world from their position, as opposed to letting them be objects, letting them be subjects, up until Django and Chain, you know, 10 years ago, or however long that was, uh, the most popular image of slavery was gone with was from Gone with the Wind. I mean, that was in many ways the most popular film that will ever be made in some in, in, in many ways and adjusted dollars and audience and how much impact it had on the culture. And that was a highly curated, extraordinarily carefully designed image of the institution. And the entire movie was basically an apologia for that institution. I mean, if you take a look at the opening crawl, you know, it says, you know, once upon a time, there was a land of cavaliers and their ladies of you know, of, of, of this and that, of masters and slaves, a wonderful world that is gone with the wind. That's what the title means. So this is the subtext of race relations in America. And if you don't talk about it directly, if you say, well, it was Joseph Campbell. Yeah, Campbell was a racist, absolutely. But he wasn't alone. If he'd been alone, he, his, his, an editor or a producer or a writer becomes popular because the images that they create appeal to the audience. They know, you know, their taste in something is shared by enough of an audience to make their movie or television series or magazine successful. It's not rocket science in that sense. So you can't look, if you look at him and say, oh my God, that's terrible. You then have to ask the next question. Why did his sense of taste, why did his, ethic? Why did his view of the universe appeal so much to his readers? You can't absolve them. You just can't. You just have to, what you can do is kind of say, well, what are human beings that we have this particular tendency? And that I think is a, a philosophical question that science fiction took a long time to begin to answer in any direct form. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that first Pabst wants Cisco to make the captain his stories white. And then it suggested that they make this the dream of a black man to make it more palatable to the audience. And Benny agrees that he says it's better than chalk on a sidewalk. You know, he doesn't necessarily agree, but if this is the only way he can get his stories published, he's going to go for it. Yeah, and the idea of how he's going to feel about that, you know, there's a line, Larry Fishburne in the movie uh, Tuskegee Airmen talks about the question about, you know, how do I feel about my country and how does my country feel about me? The power the energy that drives art is the sense of who am I? This is who I am. This is how I see the world. This is my heart. And then you, you focus that through your craft. But if an artist feels in their heart, the audience doesn't see me. The audience doesn't want to see me. The audience doesn't really want to know what I think and feel. The audience wants me to be a, a trained monkey jumping up and down and telling stories and smiling and acting like everything is fine when it's not. And I have this pain and you're interested in my laughter and you're interested in my extrapolations and my fantasies, but you don't want to know who I really am. That, I think, informed my view of Benny, the knowledge that he loved people who did not love him. He loved an audience and wanted that audience to love him and they did not. And that is a painful thing for an artist. It drives people into alcoholism and suicide. And there is in Act 3 a bit of the other Black characters in the episode trying to convince him to give up. Not to give up, but to move on. We have Cassie wanting him to give up his writing so they can take over the restaurant and start their life together. And we have Jimmy, who this ends up being the only time the N-word has ever been used in Star Trek. And I kind of admire that they, if they're going to have an episode about racism, they didn't shy away from it. I think that that was the right choice, you know? You know, Star Trek has its own issues, you know, which we may or may not get into. But what I will say is that I do believe that Star Trek was also one of the best shows that science fiction ever had for trying to deal with these things. If it couldn't do it 100% or if it had its own flaws, that's because it was created by human beings. It's an exceptional series of shows, and it has tried to do something of value. You know, across many years, that's much to its credit. Yeah, it's just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of Benny and the other writers in the 1950s having to make science fiction 
conform to a very narrow range of ideas and perspectives versus what I've always felt science fiction is supposed to do, which is provoke new ideas and make you see new perspectives. Well, it does provoke new ideas, but the only way that would not be true is if racism really wasn't much of a problem in America. And if racism wasn't a problem in America, then how do you explain the differential statistics of things like infant mortality and lifespan and incarceration rates and inherited wealth? I mean, really, you only have two choices. When you take a look at those statistics, either you think that the people are different or you think that the territory they've traversed is different, that there have been obstacles. And the more familiar you are with those statistics, the larger, either the larger the obstacles or the greater the gap in capacity between the, the groups would have to be. People are welcome to come down on either side of that. But if you know that this has happened, you know, that we've had centuries of this, then it is reasonable that science fiction would not be free of this. I think that you might hope so because you found safe haven there, that you felt like, ah, finally I found a place that feels like home. And you hate to think that, that those sorts of thoughts can exist at home. You know, isn't there some place that is free of these things? Certainly, people who can dream of the stars would, would see more clearly than that. But I think that that's not paying attention to the way we really are as a species, what we really, what we really do, how much we really other people, the, the, the degree to which we put people in boxes. I think that, that we have, we're starting to look at issues of race and gender much more deeply now than we did 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I think that it's, it's important to, you know, to forgive, to forgive ourselves for being human. And that allows us to forgive science fiction and say, you know, there is this thing that we love. It is exceptional, but it ain't perfect. There's a difference too, I think, between theory and practice here, right? Because you can present new ideas in in these older stories and lots of authors certainly did but when all the characters are white or robots or presumed white because it's never fully stated so therefore you know we've talked lots of times about how the default character is a white man that and and every other is truly an alien species then it's there's this distance that white audiences especially have in thinking about these new ideas. When you start bringing in marginalized people into the stories and making it just like we talked about at the very beginning of this discussion, that Star Trek was dealing with racism on Earth, it makes it a lot more difficult for people, white people, to grapple with. Well, by setting it in the past, it allowed people to say, oh, wasn't it terrible back then? Sure. Yeah. You know, it wasn't me, you know, but it wasn't even, maybe it was my grandparents or it was my parents, but it, you know, it's not me. The real power would have been doing something that was set in the same year as the episode was made. That would have been devastating. Mm -hmm. The closer you get to home, the more difficult it is for people. That's right. And that's the whole thing that people, people want to believe it's over. You want to believe that we're not dealing, that we're not having to deal with that. And I can understand that. You know, I, I truly do. I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. But, you know, it's not honest. I would argue that it's painfully honest because regardless of the method of which the story is being told, whether it's told through the lens of science fiction, whether it's told through the lens of a period drama, because a historical fiction, rather, because it takes place in the past, rather... It takes place in the future. The, the painful parts of that episode are painful for the exact same reasons, right? It's, it's that, that level of, of anguish, that level of despair, the, the, the way society gaslit Benny into believing that his story was somehow inherently not worth it is something that transcends time, transcends genre. Now, I would argue with that because I've simply heard too many people talk about, isn't it terrible how bad things were then, but not make the application to, is is it still that bad now? 
that it allows them to say it happened in the past. And I've had countless conversations about it. Well, my point was that the honesty of racism transcends genre. So whether it's being told in a method like this, or whether it's being discussed over the water cooler, or however you choose to talk about it, the reality of its effects are are still very real. And there's no way to be dishonest about how it affects people. No, but I hear people being dishonest about that all the time. I mean, seriously, every literally every day, because it's, you know, I, I I spend a lot of time on on social media, and I don't think a day has gone by that I don't see people in denial about it. I mean, and I'm deadly serious about this. Well, sir, just because someone is in denial of it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So no, no, what I'm saying is that that what people want is to be able to say it was bad back then. Right, but my point is is that it's it's bad regardless, right? Regardless of when it's back then or if it's. Now, if one could, one could make the argument that it's worse now because we have a point of reference in terms of how bad a quote unquote could have been. I would never say that. I would never say it was worse now. Yeah, my point is trying to quantify it. No, I, whether... think you, I, think, I think you can quantify it. I think you can take a look at things along the lines of, like I said, inherited wealth, incarceration rates, infant mortality. And you, know, you can look at things along the lines of percentage of representation in Congress. You know, and and there are any there are a number of different things that you really can look at, at to, to quantify these things, and it would seem to me to be pretty clear that generation by generation we're getting better. Well, then I'll have to respectfully disagree then, because we can go back and forth in terms of 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 that. So, well, I just want to jump in and mention it was very different in 1998 watching the scene where Jimmy is shot because he had a weapon, aka a crowbar, that he was using to break into a car than it is to watch it today, having the context of of the last couple of years where this has been so much more in the news. And incidentally, in the original script, it was actually Willie that was killed for dating a white woman. Hmm. Yeah, just remembering that interracial marriages were illegal until sometime in the late 60s, was it? You know, you can take a look at stuff like that. You know, I I tend to, because our feelings can be anywhere, you know, and I can feel anything I want to, I really like data. This is the way I look at things. You know, if, if, if something is damaging, it's going to have measurable effects. And so when those measurable, measurable effects are gone, I don't care how people feel. It's not damaging anymore. So that's the way I tend to look at these, at these things. And of course, other people look at them different ways. So in Act 5, we get to kind of the big climax where Benny returns to the office after, after having been beaten by the cops. So he can catch the new issue with the story in it. And Pabst arrives and tells them that the publisher pulps the issue and that Benny is fired on top of that. This is where Avery Brooks gives the most powerful performance of probably the entire series. The scene, it like it cuts right when he collapses to the floor, but apparently this just went on for several minutes after after that happened. Nana said, when his character collapses, I remember being alarmed and unsure that the actor was okay. I've never gotten scared like that for another actor's welfare in all my experience. It was chilling to watch. I've heard her talk about that several times. And I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what being on that set in that moment was like, especially since they cut so quickly. Yeah, that, that, the scene is heavy for obvious reasons, but the nuances that, that fuel the scene are, so so painful like to to exist in a room and be gaslit that your existence is less than somehow or that your contributions are less than or that your experience is only valid if it's measurable and data is like the most painful thing a person can go through you know if you want to remove specific ethnicities from it we still can find parallels across multiple cultures across multiple times when you when you look when you live in a supremacist society that has this very fascist idea about what's acceptable and what isn't being told that not only your story isn't good enough because of a bunch of superficial you know man-made reasons but that your worth as an individual is now called into question cuz now you have to worry about your livelihood am i going crazy for wanting a better quality of life like that moment that anguish specifically is something that if they hadn't told it through the lens of writers in the 50s would still be as tangible as is now as is ever perhaps in different ways certainly but 
that scene, just to see it, the audacity of putting it on stage, like we talk all the time about, put it on TV, you cowards, putting that pain, putting that anguish, putting the rawness of that experience on television in the 90s is, is one of the most courageous things I think Star Trek could have done in the individual's included in that decision as well. Yeah, in the original pitch, they ended up publishing the story because of Benny's breakdown, and I'm kind of glad they took that out. And that would have been unrealistic. First of all, most you know, most writers weren't on staff. They wrote like crazy and got paid by the word, you know. So the idea of firing Benny, I think that's to help the audience understand what he's going through, but that's not that's not doesn't really reflect what was going on with uh, with writers of any kind. In most of these magazines, they were freelancers. So the story kind of ends with Cisco back on the station and he's walked in Benny's shoes and now he feels like he can continue to fight the good fight. Does anyone have any thoughts about how they ended that? Well, I brought it up a little bit earlier about I'm not sure what what the moral is here. And if it is what I think it is of keep going, even though you're feeling broken down because you might be paving a way. I'm I'm not sure that it's a necessarily a good one or maybe I should say a healthy one. I would think that the moral isn't for Cisco. The moral would be for the audience. You know, I think that the best moral that I would extract from that has to do with having a perspective on your problem such that the viewer, let's say a viewer if the viewer was black they're on a continuum between the 1950s and the 22nd century, you know, 23rd century. When the Star Trek says, is it the 23rd century? 24th. 24th century. So that Cisco is out there in the future. We are in the present watching it, watching this show, this shadow play that has been written and performed and, and broadcast to us. And it is about an event in the 50s. So, from that sense, I think that it is perfectly reasonable to say, yes, there are still problems, but look at the progress we've made. Also, of course, look at how much further we have to go before we get to equality. I think that being willing to accept that you've made progress without believing that that means you can stop is a very valuable thing for human beings. So there is some additional material Benny does appear again in season seven, episode two, Shadows and Symbols, where he is in the psych ward, presumably where he was being taken on the ambulance at the end of Far Beyond the Stars. And I also wanted to be sure to mention this in this episode. Stephen, I want to ask you about what made you decide to add the World's Fair to your novel? Well, it was the idea of needing to fill, you know, to fill in, you know, what, what is the story that I could tell? that would that would fill out the book and i didn't have a lot of time to think about it so i really have to give that credit to what stephen king calls the boys in the basement it was you know that it occurred to me i was researching something about time something about the orb and it was i looked at the years that i could conceivably choose and is if i'm if i'm if i'm not mistaken it was coincidental that that year was the year of the World's Fair. And I thought, oh, okay, now there's something that I can use that will provide a lot of good symbols, uh, an easily memorable touchstone, so forth, so that I'm going back into the past, way back into the past, and then in the future, and then the reader is reading it in the present, so that the book is taking place in four different time zones. And it felt like that would give me some symmetry. So if I'm not mistaken, the World's Fair was uh, serendipitous, that once I'd chosen the approximate time, it jumped out at me and I said, oh, it was a World's Fair. And I also want to ask you, so when you started writing in the early 80s, you were actually closer to Benny Russell's time than you are to us today. Do you think your experience informed your novelization at all? Of course it did. Sure. Absolutely. You know, I like I said, I was... Octavia Butler and I were the only science fiction, black science fiction writers in the world, as far as I knew. It was unspeakably lonely. I can't begin to tell you. I hear people saying, you know, I'm the only black person or the only woman at my company. You know, that's nice. Try being the only one in the world. It was easy for me to feel 
that, you know, Benny felt like I have this talent, I have this genius, I'll change the world, I'll make them see me and so forth. You know, that was a battle I went through every day. Uh, you know, what, what does this all mean? Who cares? Am I being a fool? Am I wasting my life? Am I, am I endangering my future? Can people see me? You know, is this a smart way for me to invest my time and energy at the most fertile time in my life? You know, wouldn't I be smarter doing something else that has a better chance of success? Because not only am I blocked from getting into certain aspects of the field, but people won't even tell the truth about the fact that I'm blocked. You know, they will, they will you know, hallucinate that Black people aren't in the science fiction field because of lack of capacity or interest. They won't say to themselves, well, maybe we're part of the problem. So the things that Benny was going through, some version or another, I was thinking every day of my life. Well, we're so glad that you did this novelization, that you could join us for the show today. My pleasure. Steve, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can try stephenbarneslife.com or you can find me on uh, on Amazon. Uh, if you're interested in Afrofuturism, you know, specifically Black people in, in science fiction, my wife, who's a, a horror novelist and scholar, to not do, have a course in Afrofuturism called just afrofuturismwebinar.com. You can check that out. Awesome. And Kennedy, where can folks find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter, aka the bird app at uh, that Mikey chick. That's that M-I-K-E-Y-C-H-I-C-K. Don't act up in my comments, though. It's a safe place. No gatekeeping allowed. <laughs> and Sue, where can folks find you? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And I'm Sarah. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Miyoko, S-A-R-A-H, M as in Mary, I-Y-O-K-O. And you can find my fanzine, Star Trek Quarterly, on Facebook or at StarTrekQuarterly.wordpress.com. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit WomenAtWarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at WomenAtWarp.com. And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.